Singaporean friend and he said, wow, you guys, uh, Malaysians have all this monarchy that are quite fantastic. Even when they come to Singapore, they have a convoy of police that go ahead of them, clears the road, and then clears out all the people from the shopping mall and only a few people are allowed in. Power, privilege, pomp, grandeur. There's a certain element of representation of the best and the finest of what our nation can produce that's represented in that royalty or that ruler. Why then are we looking at this particular passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Now, Samuel is a particularly unique character. He's one of the only few peoples where you encounter him as a priest, a prophet, as well as a judge. He also comes at a point, especially as we look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, a tipping point from the point of judges moving on into kings. And to give you a brief overview of the Old Testament, what Samuel, uh, what Samuel does as a result of this demand by the elders of Israel will trigger 120 years of monarchy in the Old Testament. Firstly, uh, Saul would come into the picture and Saul would be a failed king who didn't follow what God wanted him to do. And then would come David, but soon after David would come Solomon and Solomon started well and effectively then the kingdom split. And in that split, we have northern Israel, southern Israel, and southern Israel we call Judah. The northern the northern kingdom had 19 kings. All of them were bad. Or at least that's how the narrative is given to us. The southern kingdom had 20 kings, of whom 8 were like David, and the other 12 were like Ahab. Therefore, bad. And in all this monarchy that goes on is this ongoing theme of who really is king over Israel, the promised people of God. So with this in the background, I am going to focus on our text and try and highlight to you what went wrong. Because I gather from our liturgy today and our worship and, our, and the songs that we declare, no one's going to dispute that God is King, that Jesus is Lord. At least I don't think so. So why don't we you know, why do people still make this kind of mistakes? And I'd like to go back to see in the Old Testament some lessons that tell us what were the motivations that led them down this particularly difficult path. Now, I, I mentioned as I started that there were major positions uh, in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, these leadership positions were either uh, prophet, priest, judge, and king. And Samuel filled three of them, but not the fourth one, not as a king. He was a priest uh, who is, uh, prophets, for example, are a mouthpiece of God. They go around saying, thus says the Lord, and it happens. They foretell, but they also foretell. They foretell things that are about to happen, but they tell forth what God has already told them. Priests, on the other hand, uh, they represent the people who 
act as intermediaries between God and the rest of the people. They hear the word of God and they offer offerings and sacrifice. And Samuel, uh, from a very young age, under the pupillage of Eli, has done this. And I, I believe, uh, having talked talk to Pastor Shen, you all have covered that. Where Samuel is the one person, when he was young, who hears the word of God and is finally responding to God, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So what then is a judge? Now, in the sequence in the Old Testament where we're reading 1 Samuel, you have to understand the literary sequence. You've got the Old Testament uh, books of the Pentateuch, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. Then we come to uh, Exodus and all that. Uh, and then Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. And after Joshua comes the book of Judges. Now Joshua has conquered in the land as leader after Moses, a leader of a band of tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and entered into the promised land. Now they've, now they've kind of like become a nation. God has given them a constitution, the Ten Commandments, and various rules. And God has ordained to them what they ought to do. And every once in a while, when the people went wrong and the enemies around started attacking them, he would raise a judge. And so the book of Judges tells us what happens after Joshua passes away. Judges, one after the other, come and they are raised up in response to a cycle a cycle that spirals until it gets worse and worse and worse. The last one being Samson. Now, in this particular cycle, a judge would be raised. And there were two types of judges. One judge would be a uh, deliverer judge. Guys like Gideon, uh, you know, Deborah. Uh, they go around and they fight military conquest. They conquer the enemies that had been oppressing the people who had been, by the way, uh, uh, what do you call it, running away from God and doing that which was evil. And in their persecution, they cry out to God. God listens and sends and raises a judge. A judge comes and then the cycle repeats. So the first type of judge is a mighty deliverer type judge. The second type of judge is what we call a judicial type judge. A judge who administers, who decides cases, who determines what is right and uh, uh, manages things. Now Samuel is both a mighty deliverer, but also one who helps make decisions about what to do. So you've arrived at a point where this tribal system is working, albeit not to the satisfaction of the people. And it's important to see in 1 Samuel chapter 7, um, Samuel has just fought a battle that, and, and defeated the Philistines. It's, a, it's an amazing battle. And chapter 8 is many years later, when he is much older. So bear this in mind. They have a political system that is tribal in its nature, the sovereignty, or rather the headship of how they make decisions is vested in the elders and the people. A little bit like what we call a democracy nowadays. The difference though, it's 
not a democracy because it is a theocracy. A theocracy where God is the ultimate king who decides who will be the judge. He appoints them. He anoints them and calls them. And they, by great power, show the works of God that they are the ones chosen by God. Now, let's go into the text. The text begins in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Samuel grew old. He appointed his sons as Israel leaders. Now, note here, he appoints them as leaders, not as a judge to replace him. Uh, the name of his firstborn was Joel, very biblical name. Uh, blessed be God, uh, El, Joel. And the name of his second was Abijah. God is my father. That's the meaning. So very godly names. And they served at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is a small provincial town in the south. So they're not placed in a very important uh, leadership position right in the center of Israel. It's a small province. And they are leaders there. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now, have you heard this before? Yes, we heard it in the form of Eli, the priest, who also appointed his, his sons uh, to be the priests, and they corrupted the practices of the temple. So history repeats itself, and the people panic. Verse 4, I hope you have your Bible open. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now, Samuel's uh, operating point is Ramah. Ramah was a permanent fixture in Israel, quite central. Although he did a circuit as a judge, that was his home base. And they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Now I'm going to pause there for a moment. The key operative here is, they said to him, you are old, your sons do not follow your ways, now appoint, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Such as all the other nations have. Now where does this go wrong? Was it the case that Israel was never ever meant to have a king? And the answer is no. Because right even in uh, Exodus, uh, even when we talk about Abraham, when Abraham is called, he is told, out of you, kings will come. Now, that doesn't happen for many, many years, but the prophecy is eventually they would have a king. Not only that, in Deuteronomy, uh, before they enter the promised land, the commandment is given to them that when you enter into land and you require or you desire a king, just like all the other nations around you, the king must be of a particular nature. One, he was supposed to be an Israelite, not some foreigner. You might wonder why would anyone do that, except that when you look at Egypt, Egypt had a pharaoh who was a foreigner, a Hyksos a foreigner, not native to Egypt. So it did happen. 
Apart from that, he also said he was not to be, this king was not to be one who chased after wealth or went back to Egypt in order to get more horses, more military power, more military alliances. Most importantly, it says, he is not one to have many wives. David failed. (laughs) Solomon failed. And he was supposed to keep a copy of the law that he had written by his own hand next to his bed so that he would listen to God's commandments. So we kind of know that it wasn't the case that having a king was the problem. What was the problem was really the statement that says, give us a king such as all the other nations have. So let me point out the first wrong thing that they did. They were sinful in their motives uh, in requesting for a king like all the nations. You find it in verse 5 and verse 20. Let me read verse 5 and 20 back to you again. Verse 5 says, Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Verse 20 says, We want a king over us, then he, we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So they wanted a king, but they didn't want a king in the mold of what Deuteronomy had given. They wanted a king like all the other nations around us. Now, what were all the other nations around them? There were the Philistines, the Ammonites, the the Egyptians. Uh, These people, the Hittites and all that, they had kings who were dynasties, who had great pomp and splendor, had multiple wives, had a conscripted army. In other words, they were paid soldiers. They invested in coming up with proper bureaucracy and military rule. And effectively, they had outsourced the fighting of the war to this army. So that's, you know, sounds okay, but what's wrong with that? We have to go back and remember that in Judges chapter 8, verse 23... Gideon, who just conquered the enemies, was approached by the elders and said, why don't you be a king or your son place him as king? And his reply was, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So ingrained in their understanding, even as they conquered the land, was that the Lord would be king over them. And they were not to be a king like the other nations. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 onwards is the very text that explains what this godly king ought to be like. But this is not what they wanted. They wanted a king like the nations around them. Now the kings of the nations around them were pretty much tyrants. They were on Uh, on campaigns in order to gain more territory. They were brutal and they effectively uh, pretty much wanted to dominate everybody else. And there were hierarchies of people who were dependent on this bureaucracy. 
Not only that, of course, you have taxation. A tax on everything uh, that goes towards supporting this particular army. What's apparent in all of this is that they are tired of being who they are. You kind of need to have been familiar with your Bible to know that even in Leviticus, there is a statement there that says, Be holy, for I, your Lord, your God, am holy, and I have chosen you to be my belonging, to be separate from all the other nations. That's the problem. They're sinful in their motive in the sense that they don't want to be who they are called to be. They want to be like the others. Now, most parents are very familiar with this argument, especially when it comes to their children. The conversation goes like this. I want to go out for that party. Uh, you finish your homework or not? Not yet. I'll do it when I come back. Finish your homework, then we'll talk about whether you can go. But my friend, he's going. Everybody else is going. And if I don't go, I'm going to be like the lame one. <laughs> totally useless. Argue, argue. But they can. He can. She can. They can. Why can't I? They're tired of being who they are, what they're called to be. And they desire that which was not given to them. Now you recall, every time there's a crisis or there's an issue, God would raise a leader. And in this point in time, God had not told Samuel, go and find a king. It is because the elders come and demand a king. We want a king, like the other nations. Get us one, appoint one. Okay, we, we give you face, right? You're Samuel, you're old, but we give you face. You get to appoint this person. Maybe they respect the fact that he's still representing God. But they desire that which was not given to them. Very much like Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, and the tempter came and said to them, Surely if you take this fruit, you will be like God. Surely, if we had a king, we would be as powerful as these other nations that are a threat to us. Surely, if we do this other thing which God has not given to us, it would be so much better. Sinful in their motive to not accept what God has already given to them and they're tired of their identity. Sinful in its motives. Now, my second point is that it is selfish in its timing. Now, uh, it's selfish in its timing because, as I mentioned, even in earlier passages, uh, there is already mention that God would make kings out of the offspring that comes from Abraham. And there is even allusion. I mean, Genesis 17.6 is uh, to Abraham. Uh, Verse 16, same part, 49.10 is to, is to Jacob. 
uh, an allusion to the Messiah that is going to come through him. And Numbers 24, 17 to 19, these were all instances where even though they didn't have a king yet, eventually they would have a king. So it's selfish in its timing because they are effectively saying, I want it now. I want it now. It's not that they're not going to have it, it's just that they want it now. So, a point to put here is that impatience or being impatient is a form of rebellion that is opposed to living patiently in God's grace. We take things into our own hands and we do the very thing that God tells us not to, presuming that because the outcome is better, therefore God would want it to happen. Surely having a king and an administration and a constricted army and a proper bureaucracy and a government is better than our tribal system. Very troublesome, very uncommunicated. Impatient rebellion. It is the same impatience that they demonstrated when they were 40 years in the desert. Why you bring us through this in order to kill us? Why you bring us through all this suffering and pain? Now God was testing them in order that they would know their hearts. But they were rebellious and said, you know, miracle after miracle, day by day, cloud in the daytime, fire in the nighttime, God present, but they were impatient. Now how many of us can subscribe to this? We can be very selfish in our timing. I can be very selfish when I'm hungry. <laughs> Wife had a bad day and the first thing you ask, what's for dinner? <laughs> Terrible timing. Selfish in our timing. Now, this is not only just a matter of I want it. It is I want it in spite of the warning that Samuel is told to give to the people. Let me read it to you. It's from verse 5 to 18. Verse 9, sorry. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign over them will claim as his right. Now, this is not a king that is talking about a biblical king. This is a king that they are demanding for, a king like all the nations around them. What are the kings of the nations around them in the ancient Near East doing? So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his right. He will take your sons. Now, clue for you to read this is, listen out to the number of times when it says, take. Okay, ready to count? Just online, you got children there, maybe when they're reading me, see how many times it says the word take. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14, he will take 
the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male, female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkey. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, what am I pointing out here? It is not just an impatient rebellion. It is an impatient rebellion in the face of warning. It is a fully informed crowd. But this crowd, betahan already. <laughs> Cannot. No, I want it. I don't care. Give it to me. They reject their identity. They don't want to be who they want to be. They want to be someone else. And most importantly, they want to be something that God has not given to them. And they ignore all the warnings. But let me come to the third, final negative about what happened. They are cowardly in their spirit. Now, why do I say it's cowardly in their spirit? They blame the political system rather than their unfaithfulness. It's because we don't have a king. It's because Samuel is old. It's because this. It's because that. It's because of the environment. But all throughout, when we read Judges and we read Samuel, we find that every time something bad was happening, quite often it was also tied to moral decay, corruption, loss of trust, violence. And let me switch this into the context of Malaysia. Very evident to me in my heart all these recent years, we are most famous in the world for absolute corruption. Almost as if we're number one. And people can't seem to brain how is it that we have a population that would still want to bring in a convicted ex-Prime Minister back into some form of leadership. Is it a political system or is it unfaithfulness and apostasy from God? Because I will tell you, for those of us who are in the know, I believe that Christians are also contribution, contributing to the corruption and the exploitation that's happening in Malaysia. We are also part of the largest human trafficking center for the world. You blame it on the government, God will say, look at your heart. Who profits from this? The one who receives the bribe also must have one who offers the bribe. And in a recent meeting that I had with the chief of police in Penang, he said, Trust is the problem, I agree. Integrity is an issue. And as much as we focus on the one who receives the bribe, we must also talk about the one who is offering the bribe. And he was talking to us religious leaders. He said, I urge you, as leaders of your faith, tell your people not to offer bribes and to be firm about this and to suffer the consequences if need to. So they're cowardly in spirit because they also have no courage and patient faith to suffer 
to endure and to persevere when they are persecuted or when they are in trouble. Ayah, this fella tahan me. I only speeding 15 kilometers above the speed limit. You want to whack me a $300 fine. Recently, someone spoke to me and said, oh, these uh, speed traps are terrible. You don't see it. You know, I cannot find $1,000. And then he blames the speed traps and the police. Not his problem. <laughs> you ask the question, who's the one who was speeding? Ah, yeah, my car <laughs> travels so fast. Uh, you don't feel the speed. <laughs> Cowardly in spirit to effectively say, I'm the one who's at fault. And I failed. And I'm trying to find some other person or system or way to blame. And I want to be very clear here. As much as many churches are saying, oh, you know, we need to have better rulers, integrity, vote this party, vote that party, this person is more Christian, that person less Christian, etc., etc. The problem is symptomatically political, but at its root, a problem the heart of every single one of us. And we are part of that issue. So I've highlighted three negatives. So what? What are we going to do about this? We know that we are cowardly in spirit, that we are selfish in our timing, and that we are also sinful in our motivations. What do we do about this? Three application points, as usual. I'd like you to know that Jesus is Lord. This is the first creed that ever came out when Jesus was acknowledged as Lord. And when I talk about creed, uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. All that creed, the first, most basic creed, was this statement, Jesus is Lord. And how the Christians would do this, because they were a persecuted people, is that when they met each other, they either had signs that showed that I'm part of these people who are called believers, or they'd whisper to each other, Kyrios Iosus. Now for our young ones who are trying to figure out how that looks like, you remember there's a scene in uh, Avengers, um, uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, where the two bad guys whisper into each other's ears and say, Hail Hydra. That was a sign that you were part of a secret organization where the objectives and motives of this head of that team were preeminent. Are the Christians like that? Yes. Because if you were to say Kyrios Iosus in the time of the disciples just after Jesus, it was counter-cultural, it was rebellion. Because saying Kyrios Iosus means... Caesar is not Lord. And to declare that Caesar is not Lord is a form of treason, treachery, betrayal, amounting to death. Now, in certain parts of the world, including Malaysia, to say that Jesus is Lord may result in you being kidnapped, murdered, incarcerated, 
disposed of. Think Pastor Raymond Co. Ruth, tell me. To declare Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge at the beginning of our intellectual understanding that this simple creed has a radical commitment to discipleship. These words imply a degree of ownership because when I say Jesus is Lord, my Lord, He is the one who owns me. I belong to Him. I am part of His household. I am part of His kingdom. He is my King. That sense of intellectual assent and agreement is the very thing that lays whole or needs to be laid whole in the minds of all our believers. It needs to be at the center of our mind, as John Stott put it, uh, it is the, the mind or the intellect is the central citadel of our personality and effectively rules our lives. So unless and until you rationally and willfully decide that Jesus is Lord, it is all just talk. It is really just all talk. What would happen if every day we go through life uh, and every time we're doing something, you're going to ask the question, is Jesus Lord of this decision? Is Jesus Lord of this action? Am I being consistent with the pattern of Jesus as King? And to be honest, when I look at it, I cry. I cry for myself, not for you. I can't, I can't account for you, but I can speak for myself. Because I would say, day by day, we have, I have moments when I know this is not following the Lordship of Christ. Not only that, many Christians, you know, Stott is making this point, many Christians are so eager to respond relevantly to the contemporary world that we accommodate the world's way of thinking. We accommodate the world's way of thinking. You want to think about what areas we accommodate on? In Malaysia, bribery is a fine line of how you define what is a gift. You want to talk about how we do this in Malaysia? Your sexual preferences are really up to you. As opposed to what did God ordain, what did God define, and which kingdom are you under? What about your practices in your business? in your relationship with each other. How does that go? Let me read to you this passage, which I think you will recognize once I say it. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. If you keep that in mind, and therefore what then happens is no longer a comparison between are you a greater Lord or lesser Lord to the question that Jesus is Lord, I am no longer really Lord of my house. The greatest king you have to deal with is yourself. Because I can have as many kings outside who have power and authority, but until and unless I willingly and voluntarily acknowledge that you are Lord, Jesus Christ, I'm still king. I'm still king of my faculties, my resources, and everything that I have. Every child knows this. Every adult knows this. So when we declare Jesus is Lord, do we really imbibe it and mean it? So I'd like you to go deeper into this question. Jesus is Lord. I'd like you to be this, to be holy, set apart, to be God's own. The Israelites were sinful in their motive because they said, we want to be like all the other nations. But to be a Christ follower is to be holy, to be set apart, a people that are precious unto Him, a royal priesthood. Let's try not to conform to the patterns of this world. Let's instead be set apart. What does it mean for you to be set apart uh, to be special unto God? We are more and more like Israel than we are willing to admit. We forsake the security of the Lordship of God and we grasp at compromise and compromise in authority of God in order to become something we were never meant to be. The greatest challenge most people have, especially in our younger adults, is the issue of sexuality and purity. Everyone else is doing this. Advertising is saying that it's okay. Why do I have to be so different and ostracized? Why can't I be like what everyone else is? Well, that's the thing. Are you called to be like them or are you called to be set apart for God? I find this the toughest challenge for parents to teach their children because to be honest, as a parent, I struggle with it myself. Self-control, delaying my gratification. They can do that, why can't you? If I'm the dad and I'm in charge and I'm the boss of this household, why can't I basically bum around and laze and do what I want to do? Because Jesus is Lord, not you. And He tells you, love your wife sacrificially, offering up your life in order to purify her. So do what is needed, not because you are greater, but because the Lord desires this of you. We all too often seek security by conforming to the spirit of the age. The spirit of this current age. Liberality, freedom to do, 
do what you want. But we need to be countercultural because we are created to be like God rather than this world. Let me end with this last one. What then do we do? We take on the yoke of Jesus. We persevere in a just cause. Let me point to you one by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as an example. I mean, I, I, I quote a long way, far away one, a German theologian, a priest, uh, who saw clearly the paradox between losing one's life and finding it. He lost his life on April 9, 1945, uh, in the Flossenburg concentration camp, executed by a special order of Himmler, just a few days before they were liberated by the Allies. Bonhoeffer uh, and his tragic death makes it even more uh, poignant when he wrote something which was recorded in 1937, many years before he was actually uh, killed at this concentration camp. He said this, Only the man who follows the command of Jesus single-mindedly and unresistingly lets his yoke, the yoke of Jesus, rest upon him, finds his burden easy and under his gentle pressure receives the power to persevere in the right way. The command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy, the burden is light. Now, that's a really huge statement to unpack. I take it quite simply as, if you surrender, the yoke is easy. If you want to resist it, it is the hardest thing you will ever do because you will find every single excuse your conscious mind will say to, to you, don't need, la, don't need, la, don't need to do this. But if you surrender and you say, I surrender all, Lord, you are Lord, I am not, then it becomes light, easy. And not only that, you gain the power of having Christ working with you. Because any other way means you are pulling and pushing in a direction that God doesn't want you to go. And that is impossible. Or rather, you do that to your own detriment and destruction. I've given you three negatives. I've given you what you ought to be, no do. If you forget everything, Kyrios Yosus. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus calls us to a life of perseverance, endurance, and courage to persist in doing what is right. Take on his yoke. For his yoke is light and easy. So, some questions for reflections. How would things change if you truly believed and embraced the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And I've tried to simplify this for kids. Uh, what does it mean to belong to Jesus? Actually, some of the seniors will say the kid's question is easier to understand. <laughs> so apply which one, whichever suits you. What does it mean to belong to Jesus? To be identified and therefore have the aroma of Christ in everything that you do. Second question. Okay, so you go back over lunch or later on at night, you can have this discussion in your small group. What am I doing that makes me just like all the other nations? What am I doing 
like everyone else, that isn't what God wants me to do. Bullying others, bad-mouthing others, complaining about the government, blaming every other thing. What am I doing that is very much like this culture? What does God call you to be that is counter-cultural? Lastly, what is Jesus calling you to do that requires courageous faith, patient endurance, and steadfast perseverance? Courageous faith, patient endurance, and steadfast perseverance. Now, I'm going to be a bit cheeky and naughty here. Every church that I go to in the Northern District, the number one issue they have is we don't have enough leaders. Nobody wants to take up the position. It's too painful, it's too hard, it's too time-consuming. You want to be courageous? Step up to the plate. You want to know what it means to endure and persevere? Step up to the plate. Ask yourself, is this the right thing that God would want you to do? I believe so. As far as worship is concerned, as far as missions is concerned, as far as social is concerned, as far as doing what is right and good is, it is the right thing to do. So persevere, endure, suffer through it, because that transforms you into the fullness and the maturity of our Lord Jesus. Don't shy away from it. For the kids, I give an easier question. What can you do to be more patient and trust God? <laughs> Postpone your gratification. Because <laughs> that's hard. I commend it to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Lord, in your mercy and your grace, help us even as we acknowledge by our lips that you and you alone are Lord, that you transform our hearts, our minds, our wills, and all that we are, Lord, to truly surrender all things to your Lordship. You are Lord and we are not. And we thank you, Lord, that you are not a despotic king, a tyrant like all the other nations, but you are a king who gave up his own life to purchase us for redemption, for salvation, and to make us join heirs with you of the kingdom of God. There is no other king who has ever done that for us, Lord. So help us to identify with you. Help us to courageously leave the things of this world and place our treasures into heaven, Lord. Help us to give of our time, our treasures and our talents not just for ourselves, but to others and to your work, Lord, the great work of the glory and praise of our most worthy King. Speak to us, Lord. Challenge us, Lord, if we have gone too far in being like all the nations around us. Lord. And set us apart, Lord, in holiness, in truth, to persevere, to endure, and to be called your righteous children, Lord. Asking this, Lord, hear the cries of our hearts and change us, O Lord. You are our King, our Master, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.
God bless.